page 1399 in your pew Bibles. I want you to think about either you or someone you know. You know, I hear the comment all the time asking for a friend whenever you're really asking for yourself, but you're embarrassed. Um, We all know those people who have those very apparent traits, faults, sins, wherein we think they're never going to change. Right. Uh, It's like watching reruns on TV. You know how it ends. You know how it always ends. They, they say, I'm free. I'm not doing it again. I'm not going down that road again. I'm not making those same decisions. I know it hurts me. I know it harms others. But before too long, the familiar plot points are lining up. Because Christy and I are so holy, we're watching MASH again. Um, and like many TV shows, they recycle similar plot lines. They have certain episodes where... Maybe a character is writing a letter to home. You know, MASH focuses on a mobile hospital during the Korean War. And so many episodes, one of the characters are writing a letter home. And that basically is what keeps the plot moving along. You know, the character writing a letter mentions something that happens and you get to see it. Or other episodes, the characters are trying to get something for their hospital. Sometimes it could just be a certain food or a piece of equipment. And so the plot seems to move along all the bartering that's done to get there. You know, the the person who has the desired item, let's just say a can of soup. And then they find someone and the person will say, you can have my soup if you can get the colonel to give me some leave time. And then they go to the colonel and the colonel says, well, I'll give that person leave time when you get me. (laughs) And it just goes on from there. And of course, these episodes aren't identical, but the basic plot line and all the devices are there. Well, that's how it is with someone, and they're never changing despite the the admonitions to change. You've seen the episode before. Slightly different items, settings, circumstances, but the plot is there. They're going to end up in the same train wreck that you've rescued them from before. And when they vow to not get on that train again, because they're enslaved, They are enslaved. And that's the picture around in uh, this time around in Galatians four. We're going to study verses one through ten this morning. And I invite you to stand one out last time if you're able to stand. And let's read verses one through ten together. Galatians four, one through ten. Paul writes. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave. Although he is the owner of everything, he is is subject to guardians and trustees until the date set by his father. So also when we were children, we were enslaved under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive our adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, 
You are also an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and worthless principles? Did you ever wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. Let's pray. Father, if we all showed up to listen what I came up with, we're doomed. If we all showed up to hear my homework and my thoughts on the matter, it's not worth it. That's why I pray for your Holy Spirit to show up, to be the one speaking and not I. Father, I pray that enslaving sins would be broken today. I pray that lives that are on the trajectory of darkness and problems and misery would be redeemed by you that instead we would be walking in the light with you I pray for your Holy Spirit and your passion and I pray against hard hearts I pray for soft hearts I pray for receptive hearts and receptive minds uh, because you are worth it you are that good Um, Holy Spirit please do this work we ask you in Jesus name Amen you are uh, to be seated I always want to say dismissed, and some of you are like, I'll take that. (laughs) If you were here last week, I mentioned that I grew up and I have a close family. And I remember when I was around ages 9 through 11, um, I loved hanging out with my older, my oldest brother, Jeremy, and his twin, our sister, Sina. They're seven years older than me, and, and I remember that I was that annoying younger brother that wanted to, to, to tag along all the time with their friends, whether they be going to movies or to the local swimming pool or the like. And I remember my mother telling me, you're very mature for your age, but sometimes they just want to hang out with people their age. And it seemed very evident early on that my sister, upon graduating, was going to go to college. She ended up going to to U of I in Moscow, and just realizing that both my brother and my sister were graduating in year 2000. I was age 10. They turned 18 the very same day they graduated. And I remember around age 9 or 10 that I was just crying into a couch because they would be leaving home. It was going to be the breaking up of our nice family of six. And I remember walking on the sidewalk, I believe the day of graduation, to the school, with Jeremy and Cena and a few of their friends. And one of their friends was older than they were, probably by a couple of years, and they made the remark, well, you're adults now, how does it feel? And I chimed in, I wish I were an adult already. (laughs) And especially the older guys shot right back, no, you don't. (laughs) It's not any fun. (laughs) Enjoy your childhood, I believe my brother told me. I wish I had listened to them, and in fact, I couldn't actually do anything about the speed or how long my childhood, uh, and, and I wouldn't say that I didn't value my childhood. I think I did. But since graduating high school and, and since then, I totally get where they're coming from because there is this era, right? There is this age of innocence, and for some kids, it's tragically stolen from them due to what they're born into, but for many kids, this age of innocence, this time when as far as secure homes go, feelings of we might describe of, of ignorance is bliss. 
food will always be on the table. The people over me will always love me. I'll have a a home, a bed, places to go. I'll let the grown-ups worry about the news stories because I don't know a thing about them. And if they don't affect me, then I don't need to know. Right. And I feel like Paul is tapping in to this first century set up organization, societal understanding of children here in Galatians four. He says that people were enslaved to their time as far as salvation and redemptive history went. Paul says, what I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave. Although he is the owner of everything, he is the he is subject to guardians and trustees until the day set by his father. Paul has been walking the Galatians through the Old Testament, commonly known and revered scriptures to reveal that the gospel is not new. The gospel is what God promised to Abraham and significantly and emphatically right there in Genesis 12, 3. It was a promise to all nations, not just Israel. He says all the families of the earth will be blessed through you, God says to Abraham. And we're talking about heirs, heirs of this blessing, heirs of this salvation. And then we keep in mind that Paul is talking about time fixed times God has a plan for the time that this salvation would take place and what's shocking to Jews and to some of us today is how Paul is now throwing both Jews and Gentiles into the same bag slaves and heirs now are slaves one or heirs another no because we're all heirs Jew or Gentile to this salvation and that's the point of much of Galatians 3 especially the last part But there is a date set by the father for this salvation to be revealed. That's Galatians 4, 4. In the meantime, child heirs had no rights to make use of what was coming to them in the Greco Roman world. They were like slaves, really, in the household, just to be a little mean about it, taking up space and learning what they learned until they came of age. Now, just like when I was a child, I enjoyed toys, games, the chores I had to do. But for the most part, I had the blissful ignorance of now doing what I have to do as an adult. Enslaved to what time puts us under. Before Christ, heirs and slaves, but not recipients yet. But then Paul is really going to tick off the law-loving Christians who are trying to bring back the law Into Christian practice. That's what he's arguing against in this book. Because he now says that besides the season before Christ, enslaving people, besides that time enslaving people, so did the environments. He says in Galatians 3.3, so, excuse me, 4.3, so also when we were children, we were enslaved under the basic principles of the world. Now, One of my study notes says that this has only been debated since about the time of the Apostolic Fathers. So a little bit after Paul wrote it. No biggie. I figured I can handle it. No, Um, I don't know Greek. I do know English and I can know a little bit of Greek from computer study and all that. But 
I do know how to read. And so I'm just going to take the most basic interpretation, which Bible commentaries and scholars make room for and say that Paul is just making a big picture with the societal familial structures of, a day, of his day. So this is a picture. So some translate this verse to say elements instead of principles, perhaps recalling to mind the basic elements of earth, wind, water and fire. But the picture I believe Paul is bringing is that as children before Christ came, before the revealing of Christ coming, we were enslaved to our environments, to just the basic principles that guarded and guided our lives. We didn't know any better. So for pagan Gentiles, they were enslaved to pagan gods, goddesses, their, their festivals, the, the culture derived from their cults, related words. And the shocking thing is, as evidenced by later in this passage, particularly verse 10, Paul is also referring to Jews who came out of Judaism and into Christ. And they were enslaved to the basic principles, to the environments they were raised in. Sacrificial system, feast days, pilgrimages, laws, culturally passed down through generations. Now, Paul is saying that children or heirs, before receiving their inheritance, they are enslaved by the season they were in. Now, for example, I couldn't go from age 10 to 18 overnight. <laughs> And neither could those before Christ's revelation to the world, a savior of the world. They couldn't will or speed up time to be a part of that. And Paul is saying that children, heirs before Christ's coming, were also enslaved to their environments. They lived under the basic principles of the world. Now, it's like this. I'm sure you've thought of this question. I know I've had. In fact, I've had it put to me by unbelievers. As This is unfair. But I was a Christian, praise God, from a young age, because I was born into a Christian family. I couldn't help it. It's just a basic principle. You're born into a genuine Christian family. You're likely at least part to, to be part of that culture without any choice in the matter. You and I know tragically it doesn't always mean that when a child comes of age, he or she will remain Christian. But the same is true for non-Christian kids. For example, born into a Jewish home, a Muslim home, and uh, uh uh, atheistic home, an unreached, unconverted tribal home in the jungle somewhere, they will be raised under the basic principles. Their culture, their environments will dictate their values and their beliefs. The hope is, of course, the gospel will eventually reach them. And we do know stories of, of people of different religions converting to the gospel. But until then, people are enslaved to their environments. And I believe that's Paul's basic point here. Until we move... From slave to son. That's the, the point of verses 4 through 7. Paul says, But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, this is a, a classic verse, and I have to admit I was just tempted to preach from the ESV for this reason, this verse, because I know it's supposed to sound like this. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Come on. I mean, let's just say it right. Anyways. In my studies, I ended up enjoying actually how the HTSB or the CSB rendered it. It's not traditional, but I think it puts a spin that leads us more in the right direction. They write, when the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. When the time came to completion, the idea of 
a fullness or fully come here is, is fulfillment. The Greek word is actually used all over the place in the New Testament in places uh, you might not think at first it relates to. It's used to refer to the patch in the parable that Jesus gives about patching up an old wineskin. It's used to refer to 12 baskets full of leftover bread and fishes in that parable. In 1 Corinthians 10.26, where Paul recites the psalm, the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. So it means a filling up, a, a completion. But I also believe what Paul is getting to is like Romans 5.6, at just the right time. Or what he says two verses before in Galatians 4.2, the date set by the Father. A completed time, a fullness of time, a time when everything that needed to happen happened because God made sure it happened or he saw that it would happen. One of my Bible study Bibles speculates Christ came at the perfect time. Factors that made this such a suitable time included worldwide peace. And I laughed at that. I know. Sure. Rome kept them all in such great peace, but an excellent road system. And the dominance of one language all across the empire. By these means, the gospel spread in ways that would have not been possible in earlier times. God sent his son. Notice the word sent here. And notice that Paul didn't begin this phrase with God's son was born. As in being born would be his origin in that sense. No, his origin was sent by God. Because God the Son is always existing. But at this designated time of completion, He is sent to our world. He's sent to our enslaving boundaries. How so? How is the infinite become finite? How does the eternal enter into temporal? Born of a woman. As in, that's like we're born. That's under the boundaries we're born into. And He's born... Under the law. Now, for the longest time, I've been reading Galatians probably for many years now, but it, I've always taken this to mean, oh, born under the law. He's Jewish. Okay. But Paul is meaning this more broadly now that I study. Paul's talking about an era. An era where the world was under the law. And the, the era where this incarnation, this God becoming flesh and dying for the sins of the world and rising again. That's the new era, the new covenant that he brings. The, Paul, the point being, too many P's in my sermon, the point being is Paul is emphasizing Christ's coming under the law, is pointing to his coming in an era where both Jews and Gentiles were enslaved under the basic principles of the world and when Gentiles were enslaved under their basic principles of the world, to use language that we've already been using. See, God came when the mystery was still hidden. A time, as Paul says back in Galatians 3.22, that the scripture had concluded all under sin. Christ came in that era and he came to redeem those under the law. There's the phrase again. Under the era of the law, the weight of the law, the rules and structures of the law. He came to redeem those Jew and Gentiles under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. Redeem. That's a slavery term, a purchasing back, redemption. And that's the turning point. That's where slaves and heirs, heirs, not errors, heirs, 
enslaved by their times, enslaved by their environments, find freedom. That's where people can be made full. People can find the completion and fullness that the completed time and the fullness of time of Christ brings. I wonder if you're hearing this because there's people that you know, people who I know, sometimes us. And we're those people in reruns. We're the people enslaved to, to, to sins. The people who say, I'm done, I'm not going down that road again. But, but then the day comes and you see the rerun. The plot looks very familiar. The settings and circumstances might be slightly different, but they're following the familiar plot line. Right? You know, I forgot how regulated and routine life can be until I had kids. We are, we as a family are much more predictable, routine, and structured than Christy and I were before having kids. We had four years as a couple before kids, and, and before kids it was a lot on the fly because we were adults. You want to catch dinner at 7.30 tonight? Sure, because i got to finish the sermon, and Christy's like, I'm going to be in the garden. That's fine. Sure, yeah, let's... No, now I need to be home by 5.30 to help kids in baths while Christy makes dinner. Now, 7 o'clock, bedtime routine starts, and 8, 8.30 mashes on unless Christy's out in the garden. Like, I, I can tell you how our week's going to go, probably. Do some of you remember that structure, routine, because it makes life easier. And even if we didn't have cell phones, we would still be on the same wavelength because we just know how our days go. She and I both know what to expect, when, what time to expect it, so as to best take care of the kids. But also, and this is the big also, kids like routine. Kids like structure, right? Kids like familiarity. They want to know, is breakfast is going to be a little bit after wake up, after I wake up. Calvin especially likes to know that breakfast is either going to be oatmeal, pancakes, waffles, eggs and bacon or eggs and sausage and sometimes cereal. He likes to know that. Kids like to know what the plan is. Will I see grandma today? Will I have to stay home with dad? <laughs> and yes, it sounds like that in their tone of voice. Um, and if sandwiches is not for lunch, what happened to the world? <laughs> and so forth. And this routine, this structure, strikes me as a fitting illustration. Children awaiting heirs, slaves before the fullness of time, before the impact that knowing Jesus makes. The rerun. The slaves to time and slaves to environment. You know, I expect the news to be negative. I expect that. Do you know that I expect people to argue and not to get along in the government? I expect it. I've never seen anything different. Sure, a few Christians here and there may try to stay out of the negative bickering limelight if they're part of the government. But for the most part, especially if the people are unsaved, it's a rerun. Oh, look, they're fighting. <laughs> Open up a history book to practically any day in America's history and look at the politicians. Oh, look, they're fighting. Sometimes history just sheds light on the winning sides. But it's enslaved. It's routine. It's what's supposed to happen. And personally, sometimes I feel like this. It's routine. It's what's supposed to happen. We're going to get on that train and we're going to wreck it again. Unless redeemed. The only hope from moving out from under the law, under the systems, under the structures, the trains and train wrecks and following the basic principles of the world is if something outside the world. Something outside the law comes into the world and comes under the law and liberates us. 
redeems us. The act of buying a slave from the owner. That's what redemption is. The, the owner of the principles of the world. And Jesus can and he does so that we might receive our adoption as sons. Going back to the Greco-Roman illustration, there was this practice in that day for families in power. If you didn't have kids or boys, I should say. So what did they do? They would adopt a trusted person to inherit their wealth. Christ has bought the slave and made him the, the heir, the inheritance. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Now, this is a whole new shocking creature. Because to this day, I know of Christians, myself included, to be a little bit uncomfortable to bow heads and pray. Okay, Dad, I have a few things to talk about. Just sounds and feels weird to me. Plus, if I said that, I'd probably think of Kent Davis and I would enter into a, an occult practice of praying to that guy. The first mention of God being referred to as Abba, which was, and I still believe is, in the, the, the Aramaic equivalent of what Americans will affectionately call our close fathers. For me, it was Dad. I've heard Daddy. I've heard Pop, Papa. But it was Jesus who said this in the garden. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup. From me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And this gospel of Mark is largely considered the first gospel account written. Um, Acts tells us that Paul knew Mark, and so it's not too hard to imagine if Paul picked up this practice, as well as the early church, from Mark's tradition of recording Jesus saying these words. What is important, though, is I don't believe the words so much as the picture and reality that Paul is proclaiming here. What Jesus does is move a person enslaved into their times and environments and puts them in this sort of close, loving, intimate relationship that Jesus and the Father share. The spirit of the Son should be in our hearts. That's what that means. And I'll be the first to admit it. I don't feel like I'm Jesus with God. As far as day-to-day -day practice goes, I think I'm pretty vulnerable and, and transparent in my prayers with him because I don't think that you know anything's hidden from God. Like, God, you didn't see that one, did you? No. But just know that when it came to the Jews, this sort of praying reeked of offensiveness. Calling God your father like that. It, it lacked sobriety. It lacked the proper respect of who we're dealing with. Just look at the Old Testament, like... Look up Leviticus. Okay, what's my strategy for the football field of talking with Jesus? Or look at John the Baptist, Father Zechariah, and Luke 1, and see what kind of regulations people would go to to have a conversation with God at, at times. Paul says, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, you are also an heir through God. The big picture of Galatians. Paul is is moving, is, is attacking, is, is answering this Judaizing, this law-loving, you need Jesus and the law too. And he's saying, that's enslavement. Through Christ, through the Redeemer who bought his slaves, you're no longer slaves. You're a son, you're an heir. You receive what the law-loving, slave-driving Judaizers want. <laughs> A relationship with God, but you receive it by God sending his son to redeem us and adopt us as sons. That's how you get it. Jesus is our freedom. 
And so the frustration that Paul now moves to is the fact that some want to go backwards back into slavery. He says in verse eight, formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. We'll talk about that. But now that you know God or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and worthless principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. Now, here's the thing. Suppose this. Suppose that the Galatians that Paul are writing are largely all Gentiles. Uh, perhaps pagans. I mean, synagogues were set up in Roman cities. But if you read Acts, Paul would go to cities. The Jews would say, we don't like what you're saying. Get out. And Paul said, OK, I'll go to the Gentiles. And boom, a Gentile church is planted. But it's interesting then that, that Paul has again, and I said this back in first three, but Paul has lumped pagan religion, paganism, and then Judaism into the same lump. Because what the Galatians are wanting to do is actually what some Christians still want to do today, and they want to get in touch with the law. And so Paul is saying, whether it be pagan spirituality or Judaism or, or practitioner, practitioners of those things, they are slaves to those who by nature are not gods. Now, Paul would say elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 10, 20, that, that Paul would infer that pagan gods are actually demons. These aren't gods. And Jesus would say that super Jewish law keepers in John 8, 44, they're actually sons of the devil. When they prided themselves on being sons, stating our only father is God himself. They want to say, Judaizers want to say, well, we read this stuff. How come we don't follow it? And Paul is saying that's slavery. That's the same thing you did whenever you weren't believers, period. Well, Paul, we didn't follow the law. No, but you were enslaved to your paganism. You, you were getting on the train to go to train wrecks all the time. And it is Jesus who brought you to God, not this law. It's as Paul said earlier in Galatians 3, 2 and 3. Paul says, did you receive the spirit, this same spirit of the son who knows God intimately as father? Did you receive that spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the answer, hopefully, is by hearing with faith, because I never met one person who wasn't a believer. Open up to Exodus 20, tried real hard to keep the Ten Commandments. And after three months, ta-da, the spirit came. That's not how that happened. It happens by faith that God sent his son to die for you to take the punishment for your sins. God sent his son to redeem, to buy you back from the things that enslave you. Faith in that God gives the spirit. So the question Paul follows that up in Galatians 3, 3 is, are you so foolish? Paul, you shouldn't say that. That's me. That after starting in the spirit, are you now finishing in the flesh? Right. Paul is saying that Christians do not mature by receiving Christ by faith and then opening up to Exodus 20 and say, OK, I now shall commit to these laws. Kevin, are you saying that we shouldn't read the Old Testament? No, I'm saying you should read the Old Testament with the veil lifted. Christ is what lifts the veil with Christ as your teacher, with Christ as your everything, with Christ as your savior for salvation, Christ as your guide for sanctification. I didn't marry Christie to then say, don't talk to me. Let's just send letters. I know you love me. I love you. We'll just exchange letters. It's slavery. 
Jesus says we are his friends. We should plant a church with that name. We're let in on what he does, on how he thinks, on who he is. He's trustworthy. And he said to Peter, rise, kill and eat. He said to his disciples, are you still so dull? That's not nice, Jesus. He asked, do you not understand nothing that enters a man from the outside can defile him because it does not enter his heart. It goes into his stomach and then is eliminated. Jesus was such a better scientist than some of us today. Mark would even add in the Bible, in the Bible, in his book, thus all foods are clean. And if you, me, any Christian were to ever think that Christ's salvation of us depends on what we do, period, keeping laws, keeping feasts, not doing this, then we're enslaved. That's slavery. I would not enjoy my marriage with Christy if she gave me a huge book on our wedding night. What's this? All the things you must do if you want me to keep my vows to you, bud, start studying. But you know what? I love her. So I don't do things that I know will drive her away or hurt her. And I trust she's not doing things likewise. Am I perfect in it? No. But can I rest in our relationship? Yes. Because I know she loves me. Not because of who I am per se, but because of our commitment to one another. Jesus doesn't love us because of who we are, but because of who he is. Paul says, how is it then you are turning back to those weak and worthless principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. Weak and worthless You know, that's the exact opposite, I think, of many law-keeping folks are trying to think about themselves. They think they're stronger, better, graduated, more higher Christians because they're checking things off. They're doing things that other Christians have failed to do and other Christians just don't know any better about. You know, Paul says to the Colossians, Therefore, let no one judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a feast, a new moon, or a Sabbath Notice that these are Jewish practices. Let no one judge you on these matters. These are a shadow of things to come, but the body that casts it belongs to Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility. Interesting. And the worship of angels disqualify you with speculation about what he has seen. Such a person is puffed up without basis by his unspiritual mind. He has lost connection to the head. And that's Christ. And that's a damning statement. They've lost connection to Christ. And it's from Christ and in Christ and Christ alone, from whom the whole body supported and knit together by its joints and ligaments grows as God causes it to grow. If you have died with Christ to the spiritual forces of the world, this is kind of the same statement of the basic principles of the world. If you've died with Christ to the things that enslaved us, why? As though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These will all perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such restrictions indeed have an appearance of wisdom. With their self-prescribed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. And I think that's the point. I think that's what we want. We want to find a way to stop sinning. It's what people lost in law keeping want. They want off the train. (laughs) They want to get out of the rerun. 
They want to mature in the faith and be done with lesser things. And an easy way to get tripped up on that is dive deeper into law keeping. Give me something I can do to know that I'm maturing. And Christ says the answer to that is get to know me more. Don't get to know the law more. Get to know me more. Get into me. Abide in me. Knowing you, Jesus, we should sing a song. (laughs) I say this often. I'll say it again probably forever. But there's a reason why pastors exhort their people. Be praying and be reading your Bible. Not so you can get checklists out, but so you can get to know the author. I read uh, biographies or I watch documentaries a lot that are biographical. and, And how do biographers become experts on who they're writing on? Especially if the person is long since dead. They read their writings and they read the writings from people who were with the person. So we get to know Jesus by reading his words about reading about him, drawing close to him. Hebrews 725 says, therefore, he is able to save completely. The ESV says to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus saves us from our sins to begin with. And he continues to save us as we grow in him. In him, not by law keeping. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we we recognize why this is such a controversy. We know. That your Old Testament is filled with things. A lot of those things are helpful. A lot of those things are good to take into account as we live life with you. But Father, as we read the New Testament, help us to see the new covenant that you were bringing. Help us to see, as Hebrews pointed out, that you are everything better than what's before. And the old covenant and its ways are vanishing away and the new covenant has come. Father, thank you for Paul's boldness. He knows he's not a guy with a lot of credibility. He used to slaughter Christians. But here he is, boldly standing for your truth, telling people in Galatia to not be enslaved. That's a worthy cause. That's a worthy hill to die on, to not want other people to be enslaved, to think that you are either impressed by our performance or you're disgusted and you want us to leave. No, you are fully satisfied with what Jesus has done. And in fact, what Jesus has done has freed us. So we're not working on behaviors on the outside, but we're working on transformation from the inside as we get to know the author and the perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, to trust you. Help us to discern what's right and what's wrong. Help us to not use the freedom you give us for our advantage or for unworthy reasons or to lead us into sin, to be enslaved by other things. But help us instead to abide in you and to be working on knowing you more. We love you and we thank you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.